just come before you. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word and to see some mighty truths in this section of Matthew. And we ask you to guide and lead us as we look at them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that had been bidden to the wedding, and then they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My ox and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one unto his farm, another unto his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went into the highways and gathered together all as many as, as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man that had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto this, Friend, how came you into this, came into the wedding without the wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servant, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, so we're going to look at this parable of the wedding feast, it's called or the marriage, marriage of the king's son, depending on where, what, what you're looking at. And so Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. All right, so we're, we're looking at this. This is a story, and it's not exactly what the kingdom of heaven is. It's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. And he says, there, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding and that they should and they would not come. So this is a picture. God is the king, the father. Jesus is the son. And the bride is the church. Now, this kind of falls apart because the bride is also the guest in this, the, the guests that come in here. So the church is actually the guest that come in this parable. That's why I made a point of saying this is a parable, then it's like the kingdom. And, but it has some interesting pictures in it. And he sent his servants to call those that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. The people who were bidden to the wedding first were the Jews. Well, even before that, Adam and Eve and, and, the, and the righteous people. And then he called the Jews. And in both cases, neither one of them wanted to come. And you notice in there in verse 3, it says, they would not come. Not that they could not come. They would not come. So that's what they refused. In essence, they definitely they refused, not and and without reason, basically. Yeah, it's just not important enough for us to come. And if you got to think about this, in the day of a king, if you were invited to go to anything that the king put on, it wasn't really an invitation anyway. It's like I used to tell my people when I when I managed them, I asked them, "Would you please do this?" And if they go, if they said no. I go, you don't understand. It really wasn't a request. I was just being nice. Go do it. <laughs> this is kind of what the king is. When the king said, please come to this wedding feast or come to this dinner or whatever it might be, 
It wasn't a please come, it is you will be here. All right, it, it wasn't, it, there was no, I would like you to come. And it's kind of, we see even in today's world in the upper echelons of politics, if you're invited to the you know, dinner with the president, you really don't tell the president, no, I don't think I'm gonna come. <laughs> and if you do, it's an insult. And it's perceived as an insult because it really is. You don't, very few people get that invitation and to say no, it really kind of was, and for the president it is an invitation, but it's something you don't really don't say no to. Huh? You don't turn it, you don't turn it down. It's, it, you know that it's an honor. In the king, it really wasn't even a, a request. He is the master. He is the one that tells you what to do. So when these servants would not come, this is a big deal. Off with your head, yeah. <laughs> Take your head right off. And so he sent his servants again saying, tell them that were bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner. The ox, the fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. In other words, dinner's on the table. Get, get over here. Uh, and, and they still wouldn't come. This is also a picture of God calling out to the world and saying, come. Now he starts out with the whole world with Adam and Eve because the whole world was supposed to come and the whole world was supposed to be his, in it. And then they rejected, we fell. Then he goes and calls Abraham and brings the Jews up and says, okay, you guys come. And as we know, they didn't come. All through the book of, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're always battling with God and you know, blaming him for everything. And you know, we get into Joshua and Judges, we see the same picture. We get, we get into First uh, and Second Samuel, and we see that they want a king. They want to, you know, they don't want God to be their king. They want it. They want a king that they can see, and they still aren't obedient to God. And all through their history, they're disobedient to God, and very few of them come. And uh, he says, so he sent out these messages in verse five. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. This word light, they were, you know, they neglected. They were careless of it. Ah, it's just the king. <laughs> yeah. when, you see, when you see the picture, many times I've told you, Jesus made some things that are very uh, funny to look at. And in one sense, if you put yourself in their place, this is almost a hilarious, who, can, who would ever do this? The king has called you to the feast and they just ignore him. You know, there's a, there's a humorous picture to this. You know, that, like, who in the world is going to ignore the king calling them to a servant, to, the, to, the, to a feast? Okay? Kings are known for their feast. You know, if you see anything from medieval days or anything, you see the kings with their huge feasts and everything. Well, it wasn't un that unlikely even in the biblical days. These kings put on a feast. And as he says, you know, I've killed an ox and I've killed my my oxen, plural, and my fat leans are killed. Okay, he's putting on a big feast. He's looking to feed basically an army. You know, he's, he's killing enough animals to say, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a feast. Come on. You're going you're gonna to be able to eat all you want. You're going to enjoy yourselves. And what's it say? They ignored him. It says one went to his farm, one went to his business. In other words, they, they got busy about life. They got busy about life. And you know, this is one thing I've noticed with, with people in our day and age. So many people that, are, that will claim to be Christians and that, that are Christians get so busy with life that they forget to make time for God.
And I've heard the stories a hundred times from people, you know, and I've told the story, you know, when you're, when you're in high school, you're busy with high school stuff and sports and dances and boyfriends and girlfriends and whatever else, and then you get, then you get, you've got college or, or your first job and you're spending all your time trying to get your place in the job and move up the ranks that you don't have time for God. Then, then the next thing you know, I don't have time for God because I've got the kids to deal with. The, you know, the kids are all you know, doing things and then they get older and you've got the sports for the kids and I still don't have time for God. You know, I, I have a friend who's very much in love with God but he has trouble making it to church because his kids are playing sports. And sports were very important to him growing up. So he's going, oh, well, you're going to play sports? Then, oh, games are on Sunday? Well, that's life in the, in the sports, you know, and he's, you know, with his kids playing sports. And, you know, you get older and then you're trying to, you know, get moving up in the company. And then you get older and you're taking care of your parents or you're in charge of the business. Then you get to be retired and you're either too, too tired to do anything. And from what I've been told by most people who retire, you get busier when you retire for some reason than when you were working. Now, I can't imagine that, but <laughs> that's what I keep getting told. Uh, you know, but so the question is, how important is God? Do we make a place for him, or do we just stay, you know, okay, God, you, I, I hear your invitation, but I've got too much to do. You know, uh, uh, song, the cat's in the cradle, you know, and it's, you know, just things happen. And this can be life. It keeps you away from your family. It keeps you away from, from God unless you make them a priority. And so we're seeing this answer to people. God, you know, God, they're saying, God, you know, hey, we're just, we're busy, we're busy living. We're going to our farm. We're going to our, you know, our trades. You know, we're, you know, you know we, we thank you, thank you, King, for the invite, but uh, we're not really interested. And if you did this to an earthly king, the king would be upset. You know, and yet you've got God who's higher than an earthly king. He's going to get upset as well. Then it says, the remnant or the rest took the servants and treated, and treated them spitefully and slew them. And this spitefully means with insolence and shame, and they, and they killed them. Now, this is definitely a slap at the Israelites because they killed the prophets. They tortured prophets. They killed prophets. Over and over again, they put them. And we've talked about this many times, how the, the tradition tells us that Isaiah was put into a log and sawn in half. And we know that Jeremiah kept being thrown into the dungeons every time he got turned around. Uh, or the cisterns, which were just probably worse than the dungeons because they might have water or they might not have water. So that you would either be in mud and water or you'd be in a dry hole in the ground. And so we see this over and over, the mistreatment of the prophets by them. And Jesus on a couple of occasions said, you know, I've sent... I sent servants to you, and, and, and you killed them. And the leaders know exactly what he's saying when he talks about this, because he's gone, he said it so many times. He knows that he's looking at them. You've killed the leaders. You, the leaders of Israel, have killed these people. And so he says, you know, you made light of it. You went about your business. You've, you've killed these, my servants. He says, but when the king heard thereof, he was angry and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. God's vengeance on those that ignore him. So we kind of have a mix here because it's not just Israel who's done this. All right. So we want to be careful that we don't stick just with Israel. But how many people have martyred Christians all around the world? Rome martyred thousands if not millions of Christians. Uh, 
the Catholic Church martyred Christians during the Middle Ages as well as Muslims. Now Muslims are martyring Christians all around the world. It has happened over a long period of time that Christians have been killed, and that's basically killing God's servants. And so we see this whole anger, and there's going to come that time when God brings judgment. And again, I love the fact that God is patient. In one sense, I'm glad he's patient with me, and you know, because I'm glad he's patient with me, I am very glad that he's patient with other people. You know, a lot of people aren't happy that he's patient with other people. They want him to be patient with him, but God, you're not moving fast enough with this guy that I, you know, guy or girl I don't like. You know, they're really making life miserable. Would you go get them? No, you better, you better be careful because if you really don't want him to be patient with them, he may just stop being patient with you. And this is why it's so wonderful. When God gives us grace, it should motivate us to give grace to others. When he shows his love to us, it should motivate us to love others because we want to give what he gives us. And when somebody is being angry at somebody and harsh to somebody, they're not fully understanding the love of God and the grace of God. Otherwise, it would come out. Jesus said, you, love, you will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And then in 1 John, he tells us, we love him because he first loved us. And our goal is to love others like he loves us so that we will draw them to him not to us we don't want them to be drawn to us we want them to be drawn to him jesus said if i be lifted up i will draw all men unto me how do we lift him up we love others as he loves we give grace as, as he gives grace we give forgiveness as he gives forgiveness what makes christians stand out amongst the world is that loving kindness and and forgiveness that christians are supposed to give out to the world and they look at it and you know they'll think that we're nuts they'll think that we're crazy you know well or they'll think that we're an easy target sometimes you know because we've got love and care and forgiveness well you always forgive people you must be really you know I can do whatever I want to you and it's not just for us but it does help us if I'm not trying to be bitter and angry and I'm letting God cru crucify my flesh attitude toward these people my anxiety level goes down, my fear level goes down, my, my stress level goes down. But eventually they will also see how God is changing your life at the same time. And they'll go, okay, and they'll eventually appreciate that probably, I'm not going to guarantee it, but probably they'll eventually, okay, you're really changing, I, and it's, it seems to be real. And eventually they ask, you know, they, they'll either ask you or they'll figure out, well, the only thing really that's changed in their life is she's going to the church all the time. But yeah, the more of God's word we get in, the more that we shine out God and people do respond. They do respond as they see God. Now, initially, there's the shock of, well, you know, they're just playing a game. They're, they're, it's all going to fall apart. Well, they're playing mind games. They're trying to manipulate. Their, it's all going to fall apart at some point. You know, and, you know, they're being nice, but it's all going to fall apart. But if, it can, if, you, if God through you keeps it going, then they start thinking you're crazy. Then they start going, you have something I don't, that I ha don't have and I think I want it. And that's when it can really start changing for you because people start seeing that. Our children start seeing it. You know, if you've had a major change in your life, your, your rest of your family sees it, your coworkers see it, uh, people around you see it because God starts shining from you. And when God's spirit starts emanating out of us, man, people notice that. 
and they get convicted and they don't like being convicted so they'll be striking out at you and making it harder for you to love them because every time you're around them you get you, they feel convicted without you saying a word and they strike back when they get feel convicted and that's when it becomes hard to love them but we we express God's love and he pours out of us and he's lifted up in that way and you know we can do nothing without his power and we've really got to begin to understand I can do nothing without Christ and the more we truly understand that the better our life shines forth and the more people are reached I was talking with somebody just the other day who thought you know well you know you've got to be able to you know have these things there are certain people who just don't deserve to go to heaven if they do certain you know sins they just don't deserve to go to heaven I'm going well you know what all even what we consider little sins God considers big ones you know God considers hatred lies and and gossip to be worse than anything else he says those six things he hates and you know again every time I think about that here we as here here we as humans go you know we'd put murder adultery you know uh, theft, uh, those kind of things up at the very top of the list and, and Jesus and God puts lying, gossip and <laughs> on the top of the list and it's, I think he did it on purpose to show us, you know, he has a great hatred for sin in spite of what we think as humans. You know, we want to say, well they're here, these are the big ones, these guys just don't you know, God, these guys, this guy killed five people and, and did three rapes and there's no way he can go to heaven. Well, how do you get to heaven? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ cleansed us from all sin. So if he's cleansed us from all sin, they have just as much right as the person you think is a pretty good person. Because they don't have the right to go either. <laughs> and this is very important for us to grab hold of. Understanding the true reality of sin. Because too many of us, even as Christians, don't fully understand sin. Well, God, I, I'm a really pretty good person. You know, uh, I haven't uh, stolen from anybody or lied or murdered anybody. Uh, you know, I've told a few God stories to people, but you know, that's okay, God. You know, that's not a big deal. I, you know, look at all these things I'm not doing. Yeah. In, the mind, in the mind part, yeah, that's even worse. <laughs> that keeps me. Yeah, because it says if you think it, you've 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 done it as far as it goes. The consequences aren't the same, but you've done it. Yeah. And we've got to understand God's picture of sin is so much deeper than our picture of sin and when we work things out of our life God says okay you're doing a really good job but now let me look let me show you more that's in there okay you've got yeah you, but and, and there's more wait there's more yeah <laughs> yeah oh and there's more <laughs> and you know so he says that he's going to destroy those who reject those servants then he says to his, to, serv to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they that were bidden were not worthy. Okay, they're not, they're not worthy of coming. I've, they're destroyed. Go therefore into the highways, and as many as you find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out to the highways and gathered together all the, as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. So they went out to the highways, byways, and basically compelled everybody they said they found go to the king's go to the king's feast and this is something that is quite interesting because that's our call our call as Christians is to go out and call people and compel them to the, to come to come to Christ 
And you know, many times if you tell people about hell being the punishment for sin and everything, they're going, well, you're trying to scare me into heaven. And I've always had a very straightforward answer to that. You're darn right. If that's what it takes you to get you into heaven is to scare you out of hell, then I am more than happy to do so. If that's, if that's what it takes. Because I don't want to see anybody go to hell. And I want to make sure that they understand that's their destination. If that scares them, good. You know, and we need to be bold. Be, you know, and not be happy that they're going, you know, that that's their destination. That would, that's not what we're looking at. But we're, our love for people should make us and motivate us to keep them from going to hell. And this is what it says. And, and, and here it says in here, they compelled as many as would, they found both bad and good and the wedding was furnished, bad and good, God's grace. Yeah. They didn't just go out and find the best people they could find. They compelled anybody that was willing to come to the feast and told them to come. Now, we're getting ready to go into a little statement here, but we're going to give you some customs of the wedding feast of those days. First off, you were, you were invited to the feast, and the master of the feast would provide the clothes so that everybody was well-dressed. All right, you didn't, he didn't wait and say, okay, well, you got to go buy your own stuff. He, the master was to provide the clothes. It was a great honor. And by refuse, if you refused to wear the clothes they provided, it was a great insult to the master. All right, and we're getting ready to look at what's going to happen here when he, when he sees this person not clothed correctly. And so... It was a very interesting thing. And you've got to think, the people that are being compelled to come in are commoners off the street. They aren't coming into the wedding feast with good clothes on in the first place. It's not even like he's invited all these rich guys that said, no, we're not going, that could have come in good clothes of their own. These guys are coming in, their work clothes, their grubby clothes, their dirty clothes, being compelled into the feast, and they, they're going to be provided with clothes. And so this... And for us, it's the righteousness of Christ. Yes. When we, go, when we go before God, and this is why I say for us, God has the ultimate dress code in heaven. And it's the righteousness of Christ. Anything else is not accepted. And we see this whole sentence here in verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw there a man which had not the wedding garments. Probably stuck out like a sore thumb. Have you ever seen a group of people where everybody's dressed the same or in a uniform and somebody is not in that uniform? Uh, it stands out. See it all the time out in the prison. You've got two different colors in the prison primarily. You've got orange prisoners and you've got security in their blue shirts. And every once in a while you see somebody in administration or, or programs like me who's dressed, who still stands out because they're not in orange. Uh, you got almost 4,000, you know, 4,500 people in orange, and anybody who's not in orange stands out. Uh, and this is, the king comes in to see the guest, and this guy is going to stick out like a sore, th sore thumb because he is wearing clothes that are not what everybody else is wearing. Uh, same thing if you're in a military base, and most of the people are in uniform. If somebody's not in uniform, they stand out. Uh, and the king looks and says, sees this man dressed up in his grubby clothes, maybe the best he has, but it's still grubby compared to, and not wearing what the king gave him to wear. 
And again, as Amy said, for us in heaven, it is the righteousness of Christ. So it would be somebody trying to stand before him in their own righteousness, which Isaiah 63 says is, is filthy rags. So he comes in, you know, if you picture this, he comes into the court, everybody's there to, for, the, for the wedding, and everybody's wearing the righteousness of Christ, and there's somebody with a bunch of filthy rags on him. Uh, and saying, I provided you with clothes. And that's exactly what in verse 12. And he said unto him, Friend, how came you in hither not having the wedding garment? And he was speechless. Have you ever talked and witnessed to somebody and said, you know, when you get to heaven, what will you tell God about, you know, about why you deserve to get to heaven or something of that nature? Well, well, and they'll say something like, well, when I get to God, I'll just talk to him and he'll, he'll accept me because I'm a really good person. I think this verse tells us that when they stand at the white throne of judgment and God shows them and they get to see how really filthy their, their righteousness is, they're going to be speechless. I do not believe people are going to stand up at the white throne judgment and be arguing with God. You've got an ear, yeah. I'll just tell God. I've heard people tell me that. Well, I'll just tell God. I go, uh, you probably wouldn't even do it in this world if you stood before the president. You know, you're, most people are tongue-tied if they stand before a president or a governor or a king. You know, and somebody in power, they're oftentimes very tongue-tied. If they're standing in front of somebody that they think is important, they get tongue-tied. And people want to say that when they stand before God at the white throne judgment, they're going to give up a piece of their mind. Yeah, well, they're going to be doing something. They're not, they're not, they're, they might be standing because they don't want to worship him until God puts them on their face, but they're not going to speak. We'll be just overawed, even ourselves. That's why, even though I love the song, I can only imagine, you know, I do not believe that we'll be dancing and singing, especially not the first time we see him. The first time we see God, I think we will be on our face and in, in complete awe of the power of God and the majesty of God and that he loved us enough to give us Jesus Christ, we will just be so in awe that we will just fall. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, everybody who saw even an angel fell flat on their face. So, you know, I love this song. It's a beautiful song and all that, but I really do think that when we first, especially those first times we see God, we're going to fall on our, fall on our face. Maybe after ten or 20,000 years, we might be able to stand in his presence a little bit. But those first times... Oh, man, I think we'll just fall, you know, completely into awe of him because of we really will see him for everything he is. And this man fell speechless. He did not have an, accu an answer to this. Now, I've had many people tell me, you know, I've heard many pastors say they just don't understand this verse, you know, that he came to the wedding without, a, without the garment. But it's the righteousness of Christ. It really does show the self-righteousness of people saying, if somehow you were even were to slip in, you would not be accepted. And they're not going to slip in. But I think he's making a point. There is only one garment that's going to be accepted for the, for the kingdom of heaven. And this, as, as, we know, as we know, is the righteousness of Christ. Because when we stand before God, he's going to look and say, whose righteousness are you standing in? For those of us that are in the righteousness of Christ, we will be at the Bema Seat. And we've talked about the Bema Seat on several occasions. That's where we will go to be judged by Christ for the works that we let him do through us. And everything that you've done in your life will be thrown into a fire, you know, fiery trial. And the wood, hay, and stubble, everything that you have done in your own flesh will be burnt up. 
and this gold, silver, and precious stones that is God working through you will be rewarded. And wood, hay, and stubble have, are very important for us because stubble is all that little garbage. It's, it's worthless, okay? Uh, remember that the children of Israel, when, they were, when Moses said, told Pharaoh, let my people go, he took the, the straw away from them, and they went out and found stubble and made very inferior bricks because stubble is not worth even using it as, to, to, as a binder for the brick. You know, the stubble is something you throw up in the air and the, and the wind will blow it away. And so it is totally worthless. That's the stuff we do that's totally worthless. And all of us do lots of stuff that's totally worthless. Hay, hay is that stuff that's kind of in between. You can, you can feed animals hay, you can build hay ba- you know, bales of hay and do things with hay. Or, and wood, you know, we do all kinds of things with wood. Wood is pretty substantial. We make our tables, our doors, the frames for our buildings. That is the one that's going to, that most people are depending on. God, all my good works are what I'm depending on. And Jesus says, okay, your good works are just wood that I'm going to burn in the fire when you stand in front of me. And a lot of times you'll talk to Christians, well, yeah, I'm doing all these good things. And God's saying, uh-huh. Yeah. You are doing good, wood, hay, and stubble. What does God do through you? What does he do through you? And that's what we get rewarded for. And that's why I say, you know, I've said it many times, I love God's plan. He does the work and we get the pay. <laughs> you know, and, you know, isn't that what most people are looking at? How can I get paid for not doing any work? Can I get somebody else to do the work for me and I get paid? That's God's plan. You know, let him do the work through us and then he'll pay us with rewards that last forever. And so it's a great thing but this man stands in the wedding feast and he's going to be speechless when he goes, what's going on? You are clothed in your own righteousness and you're standing here at the, trying to stand here at the wedding. And then he said to the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's one of the descript- many descriptions of hell. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, the worm, that, the worm that doesn't die, which is the conscience, and then fire. And we can't picture fire without light, but God obviously can picture fire without light. And he's the creator, so I believe that he can do that. But we've also seen, if you've ever been something near something that radiates heat without flame sometimes, you can get burned by that radiated heat, even though it's not coming from any source that produces light sometimes. So I totally believe that there's some place in God's creation that has flame and flames without light, because he says so. And this is just a small picture. You know, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And how bad is hell? I have no idea how bad hell is. All I know is the description of God gives us is someplace I don't want to be involved with. Just the idea of a conscience that burns for eternity. Never be insatiated. If you've ever done anything wrong and you've had to go and ask somebody forgiveness and how bad you feel by your conscience gnawing at you until you deal with it, hell is going to have that feeling for eternity because you cannot deal with the, the guilt. That's pretty severe. And you're going to know that you're guilty because God's going to show you that you're guilty. Because when you go there, the white throne judgment is going to be for the, for the lost person, you rejected my son. 
And they're going to see every time that they rejected Jesus. There will be nobody going to hell and saying, well, I, didn't, I don't deserve this. They will know that they're getting what they deserve. As spectators, and it appears that we'll be spectators at that point because we'll be with God, we will know that our loved one over there deserves what they're getting, which will make it easier to accept that they're getting what they deserve. It may not make, be any, make us any less sad, and God wipes away the tears from our eyes after that, but to know that they rejected God. They rejected God. How many times did people have to re receive Christ? Who knows? I've heard many testimonies where some, somebody says, you know, well, and I, and I heard the gospel for the first time. Really interesting when it's somebody that, you, that you've grown up with or known for a long time, and especially if you've given them the gospel before. And I will, ex and I will admit that it's probably the first time they heard the gospel, that the gospel made it to their ears and actually penetrated into the brain and got comprehended. But that doesn't mean that all the other times were not something that they're going to be accountable for. Because God will say, well, you may not have heard it. It may not have penetrated your brain and made some contact, but you were told here, you were told here, you were told here, you were told here. You are guilty. You rejected Jesus Christ. The only sin that's unforgivable is the rejection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ paid for every other sin. He paid for everything on the cross, and if you want to reject that salvation, that's unforgivable. That's really good news. It's hard. Most Christians don't even understand that that's the only thing that's unforgivable. Because I've seen people wallowing in the guilt of their, what they've done wrong. I was a Christian. How could I have ever have done this? Get over it. God's forgiven it. Go confess and get over it. It's, it's covered. But I think it might, be, it might have been the unforgivable sin. No, you accepted Jesus Christ. It's not the unforgivable sin. Because the unforgivable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's main and primary job is to bring, bring people to Christ. That's his main and primary job, to convict the world of their sin and bring them to Christ. So to, to blaspheme him is just to do that. Nope, not going to take your main job. And so we've got to understand, and this gives us also compassion for others. There's nothing anybody can do that's so bad that God's going to reject them. Because he loved them enough to die for them. I mean, think about this. If that was going to happen, it would have happened in the days of Noah when the whole world did everything what was right in their own eyes, and, and the only people he could find out of the billions to trillions of people alive before the flood was Noah and his family. And his family wasn't that good. It was Noah that he was saving. If there was a time that he was going to destroy everything in creation and say everybody is not worth it, that would have been the time. But, you know, we've got to understand the love of God. Is there anybody that you know in your family or a friend that you just think is so bad you just cannot tell them about the gospel? And I'm not saying that you just think they're going to reject it. I'm just saying you think they're just so bad they don't even deserve to hear the gospel. I hope not. There shouldn't be. And it's kind of fun, you know, some of the times it's really fun to go witness these guys that look scary. Because many of them are pussycats when you finally, get, when, when their heart gets broken for God. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a fun thing to do. Go, go to the scariest looking person that you can find on a street evangelism and go talk to them. Especially when they get saved. You know, go down to the 
go down sometime to the, the bikers thing at Laughlin and go talk to the bikers about God. And I'm sure the Southern Baptists have a, church, a booth down there every year and, you get, and they, they are always talking about how great it is to talk to these guys. Hardcore bikers with their, you know, their language and their attitudes and weeping like a baby when they get saved. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting thing here. And he says, take this person and cast them out. And then he ends it with, and Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. And this does not mean that God is choosing. He calls all, just as he hears here. He called, called the, the world. Then he called everybody else in the, in the byways, good and bad. And then he says, I'm going to clothe you. You, you. you responded. And we've got to keep this in mind. God knows what we're going to decide. When we get to predestination, it's kind of an interesting thing. Did God predestine us or did he know what we were going to decide anyway? And it's a kind of a combination of the two. Because he can manipulate. Has anybody ever tried to manipulate somebody to do something successfully? You, know, you kind of set the pattern. You give them just a different, you give them a little nudge here, a little nudge there. You didn't make them do something. You made them do it on their own accord. That's the best word to manipulate. Yeah. You, you gave them what was good for them, and you kind of didn't give them any other options sometimes. I've done that with my kids on occasions. You know, it's like, you really should do this, and then I get a little stronger, and before long, they're kind of bending their way. Uh, it's a skill that you can learn that can be good, and, you know, you can also use it negatively, but it can be a skill that can be used for good, bringing, guiding people into right decisions. Not saying you must do this, but you kind of go, you know, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And the next thing you know, they're bending to the correct direction. God would be the best person to be able to do that because he knows exactly how you were going to respond to anything. And one of my great examples is the Apostle Paul, who, as Saul, was riding along on the road to Damascus and struck off his horse with a blinding light. And God, you know, and he says, uh, you know, I want you to do these things for me. Theoretically, Paul could have said, absolutely not, I'm not going to do this. Nobody in their right mind would have said no when you've seen a bright light and you've heard God speaking to you from heaven. And he was a man who wanted to follow God. You know, he just did, was going the wrong way. But, you know, theoretically, he could have said, absolutely not, God. I'm just going to stay blind because I just, I, I hate the Christians that much. But, again, it's, that wasn't really an option for him. It really wasn't. And has God ever put you in a place where you really had no option but to do what he wants you to do? I've had a couple of those in my lifetime where it wasn't the direction I wanted to go, but I knew darn well that God wanted it some other direction. It's like, okay, God, I'll do it your way. And really, so much blessing when you go and do it his way. When we put into our mind, God, what is it you want me to do? Guide and lead me. And then be ready to go where he, where he leads you. And sometimes that'll take you to very interesting places, interesting conditions. Might take you to the, to the middle of a sea on a shipwreck, like it did Paul. Might take you to a bottom of a big rock pile, dead, to be resurrected. Uh, might just take you to a beating in a, in a jail prison for, for a night, couple nights. Who knows where it'll take you? That's where Paul got taken by his, by his call. And yet he says, I count everything as loss. It's all, it's all for Christ. And he says, I, it's nothing compared to the glory that awaits me. 
Where was Paul's focus? Always on heaven. No matter what he was going through, his focus was on heaven. And so we need to be ready for that kind of stuff coming in our life because God will do it. God will bend us. Look at poor Job. You know, going along happy as a clam, is rich and has all kinds of stuff and lots of kids and no, no worries in the world. And next thing you know, he's broke with just his wife and no kids. Being accused by people that he had taught that he was a terrible sinner. Getting what he deserved. What comforters they were. Hopefully we're never that kind of comforter. Well, if you just hadn't done this, you wouldn't be going through this. Not very good comfort. Because uh, God still loves. And if they really knew the whole story, they would, be, they would have been more comforting anyway. All right, let's look at his next statement here. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out from unto him their, their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Neither care you for any man or regard in, not any person of man. Tell us, therefore, what think you? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought him a penny. And he said, and said unto them, Whose image is this? And superscription. And they said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render unto Caesar what the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God. And when they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. All right, so we're going to look at this. <coughs> the Pharisees get together. And the Pharisees are the lawyers. They're, they're very much into the, the, the laws of God and everything. They get together and they're going to go, how can we trip him up? How can we get him to say something that we can really nail him either to the people or the courts? Either way, they don't care. And have him say something that people aren't going to like and really make, make a big issue of that. And we see this in politics all the time where somebody, some politician will say something and it'll be blown out, you know, blown out over all the political ads and everything. You know, look, at the, look what they really think, you know, and it, and usually can be taken out of context or, or it was just a slip of the tongue. And they were trying to find Jesus in one of those moments. Or, you know, they were looking at something where he just really crossed the line with the rest of the leaders. And we look at who they pick. And they sent out unto them their disciples with the Herodians. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other. Yeah, and it's kind of, we've been saying, we say in our day, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. It did even back in those days. The Pharisees were the religious leaders that believed in the temple of God and the worship of God. The Herodians were all for following Caesar and being happy with the, where they were at. Okay, the Sadducees kind of fell on line with the Herodians, not quite to the same degree. But the Herodians are, you know, well, we should pay taxes to the Caesar because he's our, you know, Caesar is our government right now. We, we should be paying them. We should just be happy they're our protector. We shouldn't fight against them. And the Pharisees are like, no, we want to get rid of these guys. We want, we want our country back. So for this event, attack on Jesus, two enemies get together and say, okay, let's go ask him a question. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? So... So, uh, things. so they come into Jesus and they say in verse 16, Master, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Neither 
care you for any man, nor regard any person of man. So basically, they're flattering them. Hey, we know, we know you teach the truth. And Jesus, at that point, could have said, well, why aren't you believing me then? Okay, but he let that one go. Uh, and that you teach the way of God in truth. And he goes, again, he could have been saying, well, why aren't you following what I'm teaching? And, you know, but he let that one go. And he kind of let them get away with their flattery for, some, for whatever reason. He wanted them to get to their question that they think is so tricky and show that their, their tricky question is not all that big. And it says, and you don't care for people and you regard not the person. In other words, you really don't care what you teach. If it, if it makes somebody mad, you know, upset, you're not, you, you don't care. And that's the way teachers, a good teacher should be. There should be, I'm going to teach you the truth. It doesn't matter whether you like it, whether other people like it. This is the truth. And basically they're saying, we know you comfort that you're true, that you're, that you're teaching the ways of God, and that you don't care what people think about you. Setting them up. Okay? And then they ask him the big question. Is it lawful to pay tribute or tax to Caesar or not? All right? You got the group of Herodians that if he says don't pay taxes, they're going to be upset and probably report it directly to Pilate and, and Herod and say this guy is teaching people not to pay taxes. You got the Pharisees who, if he says pay taxes, are going to go to the religious people and say, hey, you know, we've been telling you that eventually we're going to be on our own and, you know, and we're going to be getting rid of these Roman people and this, this Jesus who you think is so special is on, on Rome's side. So you would think, and they thought, Jesus is in the proverbial rock in a hard place. No matter what he says, if he answers the question, he loses. We've got to picture this. You know, the two enemies, the opposite sides of the track, both of them wanting their answer. And if he doesn't answer the way they want, can go in and make his life miserable. They can make it either the governmental officials going after him or the people will turn on him because, oh, you think Rome is good? Because the people of Israel in Jerusalem did not like Rome for the most part. You had a handful of Herodians and, and people that said, well, there are you know, masters now, there are tribute, we, we're just going to serve them. But most of them wanted to be free. Quit making us a vassal. We want to be free. So the majority of the people, if he says pay the taxes, will say, well, who are you? We thought you, were, we thought you were the Messiah. We thought you were the king that's coming to deliver us. And if he answers the other way, the Herodians are going to go straight to the government officials and say, you know, this guy's teaching people you know, to go live in rebellion. And Jesus' answer is very, very wonderful. He says, why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? The word hypocrite is a very strong word. It's play actor pretenders, dissimilators, people that are hiding your true motives. Uh, it comes from the idea of the stage plays in those days. If you've ever seen some of the pictures where they would hold a big, big uh, false face in front of them, would smile, and on the other side would have a frown, it was to show their emotions, mostly because they, lived, they were in a time when the stages weren't really well lit, and you couldn't see the faces of the people, so they exaggerated them in the masks. And that was being two-faced, being a pretender, being a hypocrite, was the stage actors who had that, that title on it because of that flipping of, the, flipping of the mask to show what they were supposed to be feeling. And it wasn't just smiles and frowns. It could be any emotion on the mask that, that they were supposed to vacillate between. Usually it was happiness and sadness, but it could be anything. 
And so he says, you're just nothing but hypocrites. You're hiding behind a mask pretending. Pretending to be something, to pretending to care. You know, he could have said, you even pretended to think that I was a good teacher so that you could try to ask this question. And then he goes, show me the tribute money. Show me a coin. And then a famous answer after they brought it, and he says, whose image is this? And they said Caesar's. And his answer was, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. Split it right down the center. <laughs> if Caesar wants something and it's his, give it to him. If it's God's and, 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 it, and it belongs to him, give it to God. And, you know, even in, t in our day, we've got a lot of people who don't want to honor the government. And, you know, and I understand how hard it is to pay taxes sometimes to a government who's using our money in terrible ways. But they're the one that made the money. You know, every one of our dollar bills have a picture of a president on them. And then pictures of U.S. property on the other side of it. So we give God what is his and we give the government what is its due. And God never said you, you give money only to good government practices because right now the, they've got a gov of Caesar who's not that great even in Jesus' day. Later on when Paul says to honor government, he's talking about Nero. What's Nero doing? He's burning Christians. He's killing millions of Christians all over the place. And Paul's saying, give honor and submission to the government. So when people say, well, I just can't submit to a bad government, then they don't know their Bible. They just don't know their Bible and are not being obedient. And so we see Jesus splitting this. And it was a very you know, wise motion because he knew what they were thinking. And he was able to come up with the very answer that kept both sides happy. Well, probably not happy because they, they were looking to, to trip him up. But he gave an answer that the people would accept. Well, if it belongs to Rome, give it to Rome. If it belongs to God, give it to God. Couldn't really take that out of context because he wasn't saying don't do one or the other. He says give to who it belongs to. Huh? To both. If, you know, the things that belong to Rome, give them to Rome. The things that belong to God, give God what he's supposed to have. And you know, they had a temple tribute coin as well. That they, and and when you went into it in Jesus' day, when Rome was in charge, you couldn't use Roman coin to give an offering. You had to use the temple coin. And the temple coin was only good in the temple. So to get the temple coin, they, they would exchange it. And when Jesus chased the money changers out, that's what they were doing. They were taking Roman coins, lots of Roman coins, and giving you few temple coins. And they, of course, were taking the... Roman coins themselves and going using it <laughs> outside the temple because uh, the only place the temple coin was good was in the temple. So it, was, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even valid money and yet they were making them use that to pay the temple. And they were giving them at very exorbitant prices. That's why Jesus got so angry when he went into the temple and chased the money changers out because they were making it hard for people to truly worship God because they're going, your, your tithe has to be in, in temples, but we're not giving you enough money to tithe off of. <laughs> you know, and this is what was going on with them. And he says, you know, give, to, give to God what's his and give to Caesar what is his. And then it says, and when they heard these words, they marveled and left and went their way. They were amazed. They did not get what they thought. You know, they thought, we've got him. Have you ever had somebody in a discussion about God or something who, seems, who thinks they've pinned you down with some... Some mighty question. This is the one that's going to stump them. They're not going to have an answer to this. You know, 
And what we need is the wisdom to be able to answer that because there's an answer for all these questions and usually a good answer for each of those questions. And ideally, if you do not know the answer, there's one answer that will always work. I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to go find out the answer. Can we meet again tomorrow, next week, or whatever is convenient with that, that person? And go find the answer. You know, whether it's on the internet, come to me, whatever, but find the answer. Because there's always a good answer. Always. Because God is true. And truth always has an answer. Now, if you've lied to them, then it's hard to, hard to get over that. But if you've given them the truth, and they ask you some really, what seems like a hard question, then go find the answer. I have a book at home that's, you know, uh, answering all the hard questions that people come up with for Bible. You know, answers, answering the con supposed contradictions, answering the, the hard issues. Uh, and many of them are pretty easy to answer if you just take a little moment to think about God. You know, but if God is so strong and, and he's so good, why is there evil in the world? Because he gave us free will. And you're happy to have free will. Do you want God to take away your free will? Do you want to do nothing but what God makes you do? Well, no. I go, then you, may, then you have the option to do wrong, and when things are done wrong, there's consequences. And there's consequences for wrong. We are a, we are a fallen race of people. And because of that fallen nature, bad things happen. And things are getting worse as the world falls more and more into that fallen nature, things get worse. The very creation is dying and getting sick. And we're seeing that in the way we live, more sicknesses, more illnesses that are being bombarded onto us, some of it just because of how health unhealthy our environment is, causing more mutations to the DNA and more sicknesses and more inherited sicknesses because of death being in the very cells of our body and the very cells of creation because of what Adam and Eve did some 6,000 years ago. And we're seeing death reigning all the way through. And that's why Paul says the creation groans for the day of the new creation. Creation itself is waiting to be healed because it knows in a great way that it's not what it's supposed to be and that it's not in a healthy place. So we want to be careful, look at, look at how to answer these questions and be able to deal with just all of these issues that God gives us and not be stumped by, by the opponents that we face because they don't have any super questions. They don't have any unanswerable questions. If you don't know the answer, go find it because there's lots of people that have come up with those answers. There's, there are theologians all over that have dealt with these because there's nothing new under the sun. Every question that anybody can ask you has been asked before or some version of it has been asked before. Uh, and so we want to be able to say, God, you have an answer, and, you, and it's probably in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it's most likely in the Bible, and even if it isn't, somebody will touch on how it, how it is in the Bible. <laughs> so, all right, let's go ahead and close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask you to help us always as we face opponents in, on these issues that give us wisdom in deciding how to answer and help us to understand that our righteousness doesn't mean anything. It's only your righteousness that will mean anything to you. Help us to see sin for what it is and give us a burden for, for the lost. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.